any adverse drug reaction can be in that section. Adverse drug reactions are broken down into two general types, type A reactions and type B reactions. It's not that useful and hard to remember. The type A reactions are the predictable reactions and they're dose-dependent reactions. These include things like overdoses, side effects, secondary effects, and drug-drug interactions. And then the type B reactions are unpredictable. And here we have things like intolerances, headaches, fatigue, GI upset, idiosyncratic reactions, this is an example of which is hemolysis from G6PD deficiency. And then the last two bullets here are things that look just like allergy to most people, to allergists even, pseudoallergic reactions, and then finally yield drug allergy. Pseudoallergic reactions have the same manifestation that we'll talk about, look just like allergy, and really it's just that it bypasses the immune system, so it's not, they're not real immunologic reactions, so we call them pseudoallergic reactions. Example is syndrome, another example is contrast reactions. And then finally, of all of these things, drug allergies is a smaller proportion. Hypersensitivity reactions, also real drug allergy or immunologic reactions, this is 10 to 25% of that broader group of adverse drug reactions. And you still find it useful to break this down into Jell and Coombs original hypersensitivity reaction groups. Uh, this was from the 1960 textbook um, and still holds very useful today. Uh, hypersensitivity reactions include type 1 or IgE reactions. Uh, an example, and I'll use my penicillin, is penicillin anaphylaxis. The type 2 reactions, which are antibody mediated, so IgE is an antibody, but this is really referring to IgG and IgM antibodies, an example of which is penicillin hemolytic anemia. The type 3, which are immune complex reactions, an example would be amoxicillin serum sickness. And then type 4, cell-mediated, usually T-cells, and the example of this is the common amoxicillin maculocapular rash. So with real drug allergy, real hypersensitivity reactions, any organ can be affected, but the skin is most common. So let's look at some skin reactions. Now, uh, there are hundreds of different diagnoses that patients can have when they come with a rash. Uh, but in drug allergy, we like to just group things into three general categories of rashes. I don't know exactly how the dermatologists feel about this, but the first is the IgE, or the orbicarial eruptions, and so a couple examples on the top there. And to think about, um, the important things to think about for IgE or urticaria is that these are the lesions that are raised off the skin, they're quite itchy, each individual lesion typically lasts less than 24 hours, and they fade without scarring. And then the middle group of uh, photos you'll see, that's the benign T-cell macular or papular rash, the typical drug rash, drug, um, this is one that amoxicillin is very famous for causing. It often occurs days into a course, less itchy, each lesion lasts le uh, greater than 24 hours, and usually when it kills, there's a fine skin desquamation. And then finally, the warning rashes are on the bottom. And so severe reactions that are also T-cell mediated, uh, the severe cutaneous adverse reactions, they're actually termed scars. This includes Stevens-Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis, stress syndrome, uh, and others. And these are sort of the warning signs being blistering skin coastal involvement. So IgE reactions can include, of course, beyond the skin. 
So with that urticaria, you might have a host of other symptoms that uh, are consistent with an IgE allergy. And uh, if you have the skin and one other system, so for example, a itching or rash and wheezing, that actually qualifies for anaphylaxis. So two systems are more being anaphylactic reactions to IgE. So when you think about all of those sort of getting from that adverse drug reactions to this very small group of IgE or immunologic reactions, you can understand why there's this huge discrepancy between the reported allergy and true allergy. Another common, uh, another attributable reason for this discrepancy is actually just misdiagnosis. A lot of the time the penicillin allergy labels are entered in childhood. Uh, a recent study of 70 uh, of children who came to the emergency department, five years old, came to the emergency department, and had a penicillin allergy label, and 75% of them were diagnosed before age three. So having had, um, having seen children in this age group, we can know that these rashes can be attributed to uh, penicillin or moxicillin or heplex uh, if they're on these drugs, but actually just children get rashes. Uh, they get rashes from viruses. They get rashes um, from touching things. They just get rashes. And so there's a lot of misdiagnosis that happens in early childhood. And the last reason for this huge discrepancy is that those really allergic patients who have IgE penicillin allergies we actually have identified that it wanes over time. So if once allergic, not always allergic. And with penicillins, the waning is about 80% after 10 years. This is showing skin test. And uh, PPL is, well, I'll show you what skin test looks like, but PPL is the um, FDA product that is approved for skin tests for penicillin. And the cephalosporins, 63% have been shown to be negative after five years. So even among those really immediate hypersensitivity allergic, there's weaning. Now we'll move to penicillin allergy labels and how they impact antibiotic choice with downstream negative cephalia for patients with disease and health systems. This is where I spend a lot of my current uh, epidemiology research. This was an early study that looked at patients who only reported an allergy to penicillin. And so it's a clear example of penicillin allergy labels with, uh, and their impact on antibiotic choice, which is its primary impact. Uh, vancomycin, clindamycin, gentamicin, and levofloxacin were the major antibiotics used in these patients who only reported an allergy to penicillin. And many subsequent studies have shown the same. Before I move on, I just wanted to also point out that none of these except for spasalin or cephalosporins. So there's a huge under-prescription of uh, cephalosporins in patients who report a penicillin allergy. Uh, and that's because of cross-reactivity questions and concerns. So obviously, we, we usually are documenting allergies to keep our patients safe. And initial reports of penicillin and cephalosporin cross-reactivity were 8%. And that was rounded to 10% and still exists on our FDA labels for every cephalosporin that we can prescribe. The actual penicillin cephalosporin cross-reactivity rate is actually very low, it's less than 2%. And then, so we're not prescribing the cephalosporins in penicillin allergy, but penicillin allergic patients aren't really allergic. So once we're, uh, as you can see, it's, uh, it's very risk-averse risk to not be prescribing any cephalosporins to penicillin allergic labeled patients. <laughs> that we have not too much chemistry, I promise, but that this is because there's this beta-lactam ring that is shared, right, by the penicillins and the cephalosporins, and it's also shared with the other 
uh, carbohydrates and the monobactams. Uh, I'll mention, because it's worth noting, there's no cross-reactivity between the monobactams and the penicillins, except for ceftazidine, uh, and then none with the, the cephalosporins. Ceftazidine and astrenium share a side chain, and this is a side chain right here, um, and it, those things can look identical. And when they're identical, we see cross-reactivity. It can also look similar, and you can see cross-reactivity. So it turns out that we have to worry about cross-reactivity. It's not something that uh, we should be saying there's no cross-reactivity and we don't have to worry about it. There is cross-reactivity between beta-lactam ring and also between similar side chains. But when you're considering at a population level and at a group level, uh, penicillin allergy labeled patients and the risk of cephalosporin reactions is very, very low. Penicillin allergy labels also impact patient outcomes negatively. MSSA bacteremia, methicillin sensitive scaphoris bacteremia, and penicillin allergy, we identified that if you give the alternative antibiotic, which is vancomycin, rather than evaluating the penicillin allergy, there's more treatment failure and death. Another study found that if you had a gram-negative bloodstream infection and a beta-lactam allergy, if you gave the beta-lactam alternative, you have 10% more treatment failures. And then finally, it was a really nice study done in Canada in all patients who had an infectious disease consultation. If you had a beta-lactam allergy and were not given a beta-lactam, you had an adjusted uh, threefold increased risk of adverse events. And those adverse events included either renal failure and colitis. So we have to measure these outcomes, um, negative outcomes, uh, weigh them against risks of allergic reaction. Penicillin allergy labels also impact healthcare-associated infections and antibiotic resistance. The one healthcare-associated infection that I was particularly interested in was uh, surgical site infections. And in order to prevent surgical site infections, a whole number of things are done, but one of them is a prophylactic antibiotic is given. And surgical patients who had a penicillin allergy label were not given the first-line drug for uh, their operation of use of Vaseline. Only 12% of them were. They had a penicillin allergy label in our national cohort. And we actually identified that there was a 50% increased risk of a surgical site infection if you just had a penicillin allergy label. Uh, and then if you controlled for and uh, identified, well, is there something about these penicillin allergy patients that's different, or was it just the antibiotic choice? So once we asked, was it the antibiotic choice, the relationship went away. So if we, if we could change the antibiotic choice, you can change the surgical site infection risk. I think yeah. White Web is asking for your voice. <laughs> Forgot to turn your microphones on. <laughs> So your body pack, where have you put that? Now everybody will hear you. <laughs> that must have been really fun for them. <laughs> okay. Um, and so then penicillin allergy also impacts antibiotic resistance and the healthcare-associated infection, C. diff colitis. So C. diff colitis uh, is actually one of the CDC's urgent-level threats. This is from the CDC website. Um, this graphic with all the scary um, infections and deaths. and urg So urgent level it's, uh, is, means this is very important to us as Americans. Uh, and, and a study that was released uh, about five years ago found that in hospitalized patients with and without a penicillin allergy label, there was a 23% increased prevalence of C. diff, a 14% increased prevalence of MRSA, and a 30% increased prevalence of VRE. And when that study was done, uh, I was thinking that wouldn't it be interesting to understand that a little bit better, because that's prevalence of just hospitalized patients, and was it, 
were they comparable groups this, with a pencil and allergy label or not? And so I set out to try to find uh, a way to study that and found a UK data set um, where uh, with 11 million United Kingdom patients, and we took patients that were seen in this data set from 1995 to 2015 who were adults, and they never had a history of MRSA or C. diff before, and they were seen for at least one year. And in this data set, which was really nice, is I could tell when the penicillin allergy was. So anybody who's looked at our record, you can tell when we've entered the penicillin allergy, but you don't really know when the allergy occurred. Well, in this data set, I was able to tell when the allergy occurred, and we called that the index date. And then we matched them to patients who didn't have a penicillin allergy by age, sex, and their entry time. And then also to make sure that these groups were comparable, we required them to have had a penicillin in the past year. So we were kind of making them comparable groups at the start, as much as you can with observational data. And then we followed them six years over time. This is obviously actually happening retrospectively. And then we decided, found if they had any new MRSA, so incident or new cases of MRSA or C. diff. Um, and what we found in this study um, to corroborate that prevalence increase was actually that the incidence of these things is higher if you have a penicillin allergy label versus not. And for MRSA, it was a 69% increase risk of MRSA if you had a penicillin allergy label versus not. And this is with this average of six years of follow-up. And then for C. diff, it was a 26% increased risk of C. diff if you had a penicillin allergy label versus not. And this was, um, again, over that sort of six years of follow-up. So when we found this, we said, well, is this because of antibiotic choice and can we tease that out? We looked at a secondary outcome and we found that these alternative antibiotics were overused in those intervening six years. There was fourfold increased incidence of use of macrolides, fourfold increased incidence of use of clindamycin, and a twofold increased risk of use for fluoroquinolones. And we conducted this uh, nice mediation analysis, and we actually found that the, the use of these drugs accounted for 55% of the increased MRSA risk and 35% of the increased C. diff risk. So if you could modify the prescribing practices over those intervening six years, um, we could potentially lower the risk. Another harm uh, that we have to consider is dollar signs. Uh, and penicillin allergy labels impact our healthcare costs. If you look just at antibiotic choice, the cost is different. So if we see beta-lactams, which are on your left, and the alternative antibiotics on your right. Uh, and lots of alternatives are now generic and quite cheap, so you'll see vancomycin uh, and uh, down is, and the fluoroquinolones are now generics. So they are low, but we do still have some that are quite expensive, including daptomycin, which is at 455 per day. And that's just, this is all showing the average wholesale price per day. And then it's not just the choice of antibiotic that attributes uh, that creates the cost, we have to think about a few other things. And one is that, uh, that beautiful study that showed more side effects and toxicities. Well, these things range in price um, in different studies from about $1,000 to about uh, $12,000. And then if there's really this relationship with surgical site infections, the cost of these can be almost $50,000. And if there's really this relationship with being able to avert C. diff, this cost of this can be about $11,000. And then what does it cost to actually evaluate the penicillin allergy? 
So I took this on last year and uh, identified that uh, using a costing method um, called time-driven activity-based costing. Uh, and we looked at the work and the uh, involved personnel, space, and consumables cost of doing a penicillin allergy evaluation. And we decided what the base case is or what the usual is. And so the usual, I'll describe it in a minute, um, is a skin test and a challenge. And that was $202. So if we think that, that this is cost prohibitive, it really shouldn't. And you'll see this big bar graph, and these are just different sensitivity analyses where we said, well, what if you had a nurse practitioner performing the test rather than an MD? What if you didn't do the skin test and just gave back the drug, just did the challenge? And so it can be as low as $42 and as high as $369, all modest costs. So penicillin allergy evaluation at this point is now getting some broad support. Uh, choosing wisely, the ABIM released a don't overuse non-beta-lactam antibiotics in patients with a history of penicillin allergy without an appropriate evaluation. As there, we made it on there, there were 10 of them. It was number 10, but it was the 10 that, uh, it, it was joint with the Quad AI, which is my professional organization, and the ABIM. You'll see down here, this is uh, the antibiotic stewardship guidelines um, from the IDSA. And they do suggest, although with low quality evidence, <laughs> that um, we promote allergy assessments for penicillin allergy um, as part of antibiotic stewardship. The CDC released a fact sheet called, Is It Really a Penicillin Allergy? So now we'll move to approaches to penicillin allergy evaluation and how they can vary with setting. So what are our tools for evaluating a penicillin allergy? The first is a history, and I, everybody can do this, um, and it uh, doesn't require any specific training. It's just uh, asking more details about the allergy history. Sometimes not a lot of details are available, um, but these are the bullets of things that I would love to gather. So knowing the date of the reaction, a lot of times it's a, my mama told me allergy, and that's okay. Um, we can try to figure out how far back that was in an approximate year. The exact drug, the dose, the route. The reaction details. Uh, it's often useful to know how many doses were taken or how many days into a course uh, the problem occurred. Co-administered drugs are useful to know how certain the diagnosis was that this was one drug causing one reaction. Uh, infections are really important to tease out, especially in the children because of all those rashes. Uh, symptoms, exam, lab, pathology, photos, electronic health record review can be helpful. And then treatment, just to get a, a severity sort of basis of how severe was this reaction. Um, if they said that their lips and tongue and throat were swelling and then never went to see any medical care and just uh, stopped taking the drug, I would think differently than somebody who even just had a scratchy throat but then ended up getting epinephrine in the emergency room. Exposure since is really important. So we have um, some of my favorite consults are when we get called for a penicillin allergy and we explain that we're going to give back amoxicillin and the patient says, oh, I I've taken amoxicillin. So if you've tolerated amoxicillin, you tolerate penicillins. And so knowing exposure since is useful. Also with um, the cephalosporins, knowing any cephalosporin use after a penicillin allergy is useful information. But there is a test for this. Um, hopefully this isn't surprising, but there's been a test available that was developed and is now actually for almost 10 years has been an FDA-approved product for penicillin allergy evaluation. And uh, what, how you 
do the test is a skin test, similar to the way that we would test for foods or for environmental allergies. And you compare, um, we have two steps, and so you can use this little fork right here. Um, it's a little plastic fork, and you, you prick in the penicillin products here, and you compare it to a positive and a negative control on the skin. And then there's an intradermal step, which is using the same type of needles we use for TB testing, uh, and results can be available in 30 to 45 minutes. After a result is negative, uh, we would proceed with what we call an amoxicillin challenge, a drug challenge, a test dose, or just basically giving the drug and watching the patient. And sometimes this is done even without the skin test first. And you can do, uh, depending on uh, a risk, if the patient um, really is very unlikely to be allergic, you can just give one dose and watch them in your office. Or you could break it up and have different steps. So two steps where you give a little bit, watch them, and then you give a little bit more and watch them. And then finally, in acute settings where we're watching patients anyway, if a patient needs a certain beta-lactam antibiotic for their acute therapeutic care, you can just do this challenge procedure uh, directly to whatever they need. If they need nafcillin for their MSSA bacteremia, you can do this challenge to nafcillin. If they need ceftriaxone, you could do a challenge to ceftriaxone. And so that's what this is. This is our order set that we currently have uh, in place throughout Partners Healthcare, where we can do direct challenges to beta-lactam antibiotics for patients who need them, regardless of their history of penicillin and cephalosporin allergy through a decision support pathway. I'll just mention this very briefly because it gets very confusing. What is a desensitization? So I just used the term test dose or drug challenge Desensit those are for patients we don't think are, are allergic. So those patients generally don't need to be transferred to the intensive care unit um, for observation. You don't expect the patient to react. You're trying to demonstrate tolerance of a drug. However, there are many patients who are really allergic. They have those IgE symptoms. They seem really the uh, higher risk. And if those patients need a drug that they're allergic to, they would need it by desensitization, which is something that occurs in ICU settings and is... Uh, Often they have reactions, and it induces a state of temporary tolerance of the drug. And we really reserve this for true allergy or too sick to find out if you're really allergic or not. So somebody who wouldn't be able to tolerate an anaphylactic reaction. Accomplishing penicillin allergy evaluation in different settings requires sort of different tools and different resources. And so I like to uh, break this up into how we do it on the outpatient side or the planned inpatient side. And so first, any primary care doctor could encourage penicillin skin testing. Uh, these are, this is an example of a brochure that's out in the University of Rochester, a colleague of mine shared with me, um, where they just leave these brochures. And certainly, if there's not a lot going on to bring up to your primary, you can uh, say, well, am I really allergic to penicillin? And readdress it at any time. You don't have to be acutely infected. Um, and so uh, and this might be also in an infectious disease office or at an allergist office. And then there are cases where you know that they're going to need an antibiotic and that the penicillin allergy label might get in the way. And we know this because of uh, guidance from infectious disease organizations on what drugs should be used for what infections. And then we know this from prior data on the penicillin allergy. So you could have urgent programs set up for, for patients, for example, who have a current infection and they need a beta-lactam, uh, beta or patients who are pre-transplant. 
So if they're going to be getting a solid organ or bone marrow transplant, preoperative patients, OBGYN patients, or also discharged inpatients, because a lot of times the discharge inpatients with beta-lactam allergies, they will be back, especially if they were there for an infection, they will, readmissions happen. Um, so I'll just demonstrate one of our programs that we've had, which is a cardiothoracic surgery program. And I mentioned this started after the study where we found that our surgeons, only 12% of our patients with penicillin allergy were getting cefazolin, which was the recommended drug for their cardiothoracic surgeries. So once we identified that and identified the increased risk of surgical site infections, we started a pilot program with our surgeons, and uh, we evaluated 48 patients who ended up having surgery, and all of them were negative. And what we found was that 98% of them then received cefazolin, which was the drug that they should have received in the operating room, compared to, of, of course, the seven who didn't come see us. It was more like that retrospective cohort that had 12%. 14% of them received cefazolin, or just one patient. Then the approach on the inpatient side has to be different. These patients are acutely infected. And so there are a couple options that you can uh, uh, consider. One is an allergy consult service could see all of these patients. Uh, another is that you could implement penicillin skin testing. And allergists can do this as well as pharmacists have implemented them, uh, generalists. Uh, and then there are hybrid approaches with guidelines and decision support and algorithms. Okay. So the allergy consult all uh, option uh, was initially appeared in clinical infectious diseases in 2016. And we looked at this and we thought about our own health system and thought about our two allergy fellows. And <laughs> they thank me every day. Um, so this would, have, this would have been 3,600 patients per year at Just Mass General, 68 consults per week. Not all of them would need to be seen in patient but they wanted the triage of 68 to then say, some come out patient, some come inpatient. And so this didn't seem practical for us. And then within our healthcare system, Partners Healthcare, we only had two allergy programs. So then we would be supporting the other networks um, that would basically mean that somehow we would see 10,000 patients per year. Okay, so we didn't do that. Um, this is another, uh, this is a skin testing approach that was, that was done in North Carolina. Um, by generalists, and very, um, very nice, where they uh, skin tested patients to penicillin who came into the hospital, uh, just as many as they could and consented. And they ended up skin testing 145 negative and found that most of them tolerated beta-lactams afterwards. And then when we looked at this a little bit deeper, from the eye of our stewardship colleagues, they said, well, hmm, they were skin tested, but then they got the most broad spectrum penicillin out there. They got zosin, piperacillin tezobactam was the most used, so that this didn't really accomplish stewardship goals. And then from the allergy perspective, we saw all of these drugs that are in the box that you wouldn't have needed to accomplish that penicillin skin test to have given them. You could have given it just by a direct challenge um, under observation in the hospital. And so it's very challenging to skin test inpatient uh, hospitalized patients. So we thought that we could probably try to improve on that. So what we did uh, at Mass General is we had a guideline approach by original gel and Coombs. Uh, these are why I introduced our type of hypersensitivity reactions. We did gel and Coombs kind of uh, based decision support. And uh, this is the what our initial guideline looked like. And we broke allergic reactions into those warning ones that we talked about, organ involvement, skin desquamation, blistering, uh, where we just say, don't use beta-lactams. 
if you really, really need to, you can call us and we can talk you through it, but it's probably not a good idea. And then over here, we'll look at the right. This was a lot of minor reactions, and we freed up the use of um, pretty much every beta-lactam, either by a test dose procedure, which is that baby dose drug challenge, or a full dose. And then for the people who are higher risk of allergy in the center here, anaphylaxis, angioedema, wheezing, hypotension, hives, um, we uh, had uh, lots of test doses of later generation cephalosporins, and uh, if you needed a penicillin or early generation cephalosporin, asked you to call allergy for skin testing. When we initially put this into place at Mass General, our, we found that our test doses um, were largely going from vancomycin to a beta-lactam. And so that's what the take home from this bar graph. And then we also looked a little bit deeper just at that um, MSSA bacteremia patients um, to see whether we improved first-line treatment for them. And in the pre-period before we had the guideline compared to the post-period when we had the guideline, we improved the first-line therapy, which is nafcillin, oxacillin, or cefazolin for these patients from 41% to 88%. So we felt like we were doing a good switching overall and that we were improving the care for severe infections like MSSA. We uh, made this a little bit more integrated into the electronic health record and made an app, um, which was a little bit um, uh, better received by, by some, and some still love our pocket cards. Um, and so this is actually on a mobile-friendly website that's just internal to Partners Healthcare, and it helps you through the allergy history. And so instead of uh, going and asking questions that uh, you need to remember, you need to know, it can prompt you to ask questions. So you could be on a computer or your phone and ask the questions with the patient in the room. And then it buckets the reaction for you and provides the guidance set afterwards. We studied this at the Brigham and Women's Hospital on just internal medicine services. And we actually compared it to an approach where we tried to skin test every patient. And I'll tell you, we were able to skin test about 10% of those that we showed up to try to skin test because it was just very cumbersome to try to skin test patients, uh, hospital medicine patients. And so we, um, in this uh, set, this bullet right here, I'm comparing the guideline period, this app period, to the standard of care at the Brigham. And we found that just putting this app out there and this guideline out there increased the odds of getting a penicillin or a cephalosporin uh, by 1.8, so almost twofold. And the whole guideline period, only one patient had a reaction that was itching. Uh, with this information, we actually spread this throughout the Partners Healthcare System. Uh, and Partners, um, this, all of the inpatient all of the hospitals that have inpatient services now practice this with the same unified guideline. We also now have a unified electronic health record, and that kind of all happened at the same time. And I think it's important that this has been used now at places without, as you can see, they don't have access to allergy consultation, um, and uh, only one of them, one of the community sites, has access to a skin testing service. So very different hospitals being able to accomplish sort of a, a similar program on medicine with different allergy support. Uh, we get this nice computerized guideline report printout from everyone that visits the app and goes through the decision support. So I can see what people are using it for, and it's all outside of Epic, which is really important, so I can access this at any time rather than having to ask a lot of people for uh, reports. Um, so this is an automatic report that we get of, so we can understand if there's a holdup at North Shore Medical Center, for example, they're not understanding things. Um, or if a certain user is going to it 
many, many times we can reach out and try to improve care. I also have this link to Google Analytics, which is um, really fun for me. At first, people were thinking we didn't have a very user-friendly app, and people would go to it, and you would see that this average session duration was about 10 seconds, because I think people would get frustrated and leave. Um, <laughs> so now I'm showing you a better one. So this is somebody um, who is uh, playing around with the app long enough to maybe get through a patient's clinical history and get, um, get an out output that might change their care. <clears throat> we also needed to use the electronic health record, and uh, as I mentioned, we do have EPIC, and so this is a best practice alert in EPIC. So anybody in our healthcare system who has a penicillin or cephalosporin allergy who is ordered for one of these uh, drugs, estrianam, carbapenem, or clindamycin, they get this best practice alert, and uh, this was the initial best practice alert. It basically linked to our app right here. It had you link to update the allergy documentation, um, and we have... We made sure it didn't fire too much because I know we all love alerts. Um, <laughs> so this is a very targeted alert. So even at, um, I think that that's showing MGH is with this one, uh, less, always less than you know tw less than 25 certainly fires a day in a huge hospital like that. So it's very targeted. And if you get this alert, you might not be getting it a lot. So it has to be very clear. Turns out this alert wasn't very clear. They thought I was saying don't use beta lactams. Um, when I was saying, please try to use beta-lactams. And so we've modified the alert, and we also made the alert more interactive, so you have to, uh, you can't just close out of it. Um, uh, it's a little stickier. You won't see it very often, so when you see it, it had to be more uh, explanatory. So it says, important, consider narrow-spectrum beta-lactam, and then the link is up at the top, and then you could remove your order in it. You could remove the order that we're trying to get you away from, like clindamycin, and you could actually open our order set that I showed you before from it as well. And then if you want to click out of it, you can, you can have uh, concern for resistant infection, allergy recommendation, or other. And uh, I'm the one who looks at these others, and lots of times it's like A-A-A-A-A, but it is, uh, <laughs> you can click out of it, but it's, uh, it lists a little bit more sticky and interactive to try to encourage this sort of programmatic move towards better antibiotic choices. We also have online educational videos that we made mandatory health stream learning um, for the community sites without access to allergy. And uh, these are actually available on Vidscript if anybody wanted to see them or use them. There are uh, many different topics about penicillins, about penicillin allergy, about as you can see, the truth about cross-reactivity. This is a, how to treat an allergic reaction. And this is a, uh, I apologize for the photo here, but this is of me telling a patient about, about to have a drug challenge, why they're having it and what, what to look out for. And so one of the community, the community hospitals felt like not knowing how to communicate to the, um, the patients that they were gonna have a challenge and it, should they know that they might have a reaction and, and really what to do about that. These are our old school pocket cards. We still have them every year. We give them out to um, every July, um, but I'm not sure anybody has white coats or pockets anymore, um, but we still use them somewhat. Um, I'm in the process right now of looking at our partners-wide uh, data, and so I can share with you that we've done over, just since going to Epic, we did over 1,000 of these baby doses, these test doses, and they were mostly to cephalosporins, uh, 149 to penicillins, 808 to cephalosporin, 89 to carbapenems, and they're mostly being done by the academic sites, but our volume is very much that would be expected. And this is something that is championed by internal medicine house staff. This is just clear. 
This was the case at MGH in the original analysis, and this is coming true very much um, in this analysis. Brigham Internal Medicine and Mass General Internal Medicine are doing the majority of this work. Um, and allergy consultation is at 9%. 4% of patients will have a reaction that might be an allergic reaction. That seems kind of high, um, but these are all patients who had prior reactions and they're actively infected. And we didn't go evaluate them. And I'd say three needed epinephrine, and 58% of these 40 required no treatment. So they didn't seem to be very severe reactions if they were. Um, that's how we're accomplishing our penicillin allergy across the continuum. And I just wanted to add, uh, end with how we can improve allergy evaluation effectiveness. So in those 1,000 patients who received these baby doses of beta-lactans, um, we actually found that less than half, 45%, had any record documentation that was uh, additional to when they came into the hospital. And so that was really discouraging. And of those that had record documentation, 16% had the allergy deleted, and 82% had the allergy just made more specific. Well, the majority of the patients then uh, are going to come back into the hospital, and the same thing could happen again, and they could need this test dose again to the same drug, and there wasn't any communication that could last. So it was, it was really hard. And we have to think then, well, what can we do after they've tolerated the test dose? Do I have to have another alert <laughs> or some, some sort of method to communicate to improve allergy documentation? And this echoes what's seen even in um, skin testing studies. So after penicillin skin testing, up to 50% of the patients might have the label of that penicillin allergy on their record, and it might be re-entered. And one-third might have an allergy redocumented without reason. And so this is not my best practice alert, but it's a best practice alert that needs to exist in our current electronic health record system. And it makes me very sad that something like this needs to exist. But we all receive alerts that we need to reconcile allergies. And you might be getting allergies from other systems, and everyone's thinking we're doing the right thing for this patient to make sure that I capture and encode all of these allergies. And you might be redocumenting an allergy that's untrue. Uh, so this is an alert that says, an amoxicillin challenge with no reaction was previously documented, and you are trying to add a penicillin allergy. Would you really like to do this? Um, and so this is in play uh, within another system that's an EPIC at UT Southwestern, because that was something that they needed to put out because they were removing the label, and it was a boomerang. The last thing is about messaging. So. Patients might not all want their allergy evaluated. Uh, in, in patients in our study, 88% uh, were, were amenable to it, even when pitched by allergists. <laughs> so uh, it might be challenging to get uh, everybody, uh, all the patients on board to be tested. And then after a negative evaluation, we need to improve the, the messaging about beta-lactam use and that uh, to free up all penicillin and cephalosporins for future use. Uh, in studies that have looked at post-testing patients, adults from 23 to 81% um, used beta-lactams, and then in pediatrics it did much better. 80% uh, will use beta-lactams after. So I hope that I've conveyed penicillin allergy. It's very, very common. 
10% of all, 15% up to the inpatients, over 32 million patients that we could theoretically delabel 95% of them. Uh, the penicillin allergy label has a tremendous impact on antibiotic choice, and then through that antibiotic choice, consequences in terms of antibiotic resistance and healthcare-associated infections and cost. The penicillin allergy evaluation can occur in many different settings, not only by allergists, and also it would never, we'd never get to the 32 million if we rely on allergists, of which we are 6,000. Um, so we have to design programs that engage other types of professionals. And then finally, once we've addressed the penicillin allergy label, how do we keep that label off and communicate future antibiotic choices to all of the patient's providers? I'll stop. Oh, that was really very interesting. I'm just curious, has anybody tried the approach of having the patient carry this information with them, now they're an electronic card or on their health insurance card? Because it seems that keeping this information in the hospital is probably the worst place to keep it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't have it here, but usually um, patients with allergies have a number of ways that they can carry their allergy information. They could have jewelry, for example, like a necklace or a bracelet. There are now, you know, you could have your list on an app, um, for example. Uh, most of the time we do have patients who just carry their own little cards, like as if uh, what the stent is, you know, the same size, like a business card with their allergy information. Um, and, I, and I agree that, that the patients have to be responsible for their allergy list for most patients, that works. Once it gets to when you have multiple drug allergies, it gets really complicated. But I think that you're right that we have to um, have ways for patients to own this data as well. Um, we're going to have patients be able to update their allergies or request updates to allergies um, through Epic's um, patient portal soon. And that was, um, that was contentious because we don't, it, so you could add things that are untrue or, you know, that don't belong there. And who enters the data, who has to validate the data um, is, is, a, is a point for, I, I think that patients could suggest things and it really needs to be um, added by a physician. And uh, I think that that's the problem with our electronic health record today is I think most of us have, um, are not, uh, the people entering the, uh, the record aren't usually prescribers entering these allergies. So that's a very common question and a very common misconception. So the, um, the family history of allergy only comes to play with those severe cutaneous adverse reactions, those, the Stevens-Johnson syndromes, the dress syndromes with the blistering and the hospitalization and the high mortality. So I usually try to um, uh, encourage the patients to get uh, if they're very worried, maybe I do a challenge in my office where I just show them that they tolerate it. Um, but I, it is not genetic. IgE drug allergy is not genetic. Um, and so I often say that, let them know about the severe cutaneous ones are the ones where we kind of worry about family trees and that the IgE, we're not worried. Sometimes when there's a higher level of anxiety, we just do this uh, demonstration of tolerance in the office.
not to take you too far off topic, but just I'm really interested in this idea of um, kind of over 10 years, how many people <coughs> lose the allergy. And um, I was hoping to get your opinion on sulfa allergies in that same vein. Just there was a patient this past week that had acute ocular toxo, ended up having to get an alternative regimen because of an allergy to a sulfa at the age of four that she didn't know anything more about. Failed the regimen and then got test dosed for a sulfa and did fine. But it delayed treatment for about a month. And so the question of does that apply for sulfa allergies is kind of what you had as a child, not necessarily translating, or is that totally different? So the idea of allergy waning over time is something we're very comfortable saying generally, but it's very hard to study. And uh, because you, that huge differential, you have to find the truly allergic patients to then study them over time to find their tolerance and their tolerance point. So it's very challenging. And most of that original data is also European, where they do skin testing. I think that we believe that most of the patients with drug allergies, other antibiotic allergies, other drug allergies, it's not always the case that it's going, that it was because of misdiagnosis, because of mechanism. Is it, was it a T cell rash that won't recur? Was it not an IgE reaction at all? Was it an infection that caused the rash because of misdiagnosis, because of time, and because of what people call allergy? Most allergy generally is not active. So I'm glad she was able to tolerate the sulfa. I'm just curious where in ethics you would document a negative challenge or screen test so that <clears throat> is there a field Yes. Um, so we've been trying, and I'll just go to Epic. Um, no, it's probably an easier way to do this. Sorry. Okay. So in here, uh, we have coded fields and we have uncoded fields. And unfortunately, there's no unified way of doing this. But you can choose um, as a system what goes in here, and it's at least the same within your system. You can modify that. So if you think that something's missing and should go there, uh, you can request to add things here. Um, severity and reaction type are all um, there and date noted. It's always it's throughout America if you get Epic. Um, and then... Uh, we would put that information in the comments. You have about 150 characters. Um, right now, there's no test um, test field in here, which there should be something where it says skin test date and challenge date, and that should be part of this, but it's not. Um, but we would usually uh, put it in here um, uh, with the date and the testing information. Uh, and then I also mentioned that uh, a lot of our... Our patients have really crowded electronic health record allergy lists. So if this patient has penicillins listed, they don't also need amoxicillin listed. They, they really just, uh, if you knew it was amoxicillin, it'd be better to have amoxicillin listed. The decision support is the same on the back end, and you just want to be the most specific as possible. So if they don't know what penicillin, this is fine. But if you knew amoxicillin, putting in amoxicillin is preferred because then uh, with the new knowledge, all of the alerts, the allergy alerting would be updated. So if there's uh, new information, like if you're putting in Keflex, cephalexin is better than cephalosporin adding there. But you would want mm -hmm. to take for penicillin allergy off the list. Yes, yeah, right. Yeah, there's no use to having two there, yes. And the DTA from 
Oh, yes, that's a really good point. So they had it um, in a separate allergy sort of outpatient clinical documentation structured field and that they were able to pull from, but it wasn't from the main allergy window. Uh, I, hopefully our vendors will catch up and put test information on here. Even for food allergies, that would be useful. For all our allergies that you'd enter here, it would be useful to have a test area. I'm not sure if you personally would have had this much follow-up with patients themselves, but I'm just wondering how many people actually take ownership of the negative test results. And I'm just wondering how this allergy is re-added to the chart after the fact, um, because you said a lot of you know non-prescribing providers are entering allergies. You know, in our clinics, it's mostly the MAs who are rooming patients. So I'm wondering how it's getting re-added. Are patients still saying, I'm still allergic to or do they really understand what the testing results were? I, for, for the most part, I think it's actually not the patients and that this is happening without their knowledge. They're not looking at their medical record in their inpatient stay, and they would sometimes be surprised to hear that it was re-added. Um, and it also depends on your location also of the testing and the testing type that occurred. I think that if you're a hospitalized patient dealing with a, many different things and and like penicillin allergy evaluation is just something that happened to you versus going to an allergist or going to your primary and then saying, you know, we should treat you with amoxicillin. I'm going to give you this dose and just watch you make sure you're okay. Or It's more of an active and that's the problem, the one problem. And so I think that a lot of those studies were following up inpatient interventions. Um, still, still a problem because they will come back and still have this problem, but... No, I mean, I think that this speaks to the need to communicate with the primary care physician. And so, you know, we are adding, and even when you add a note here, it's only within our own system. And if it's a primary care doctor that's not in our system, unless you communicate directly, it's going to still be on other records outside our system. We often print the, um, like, a, if, when you're done with an entire allergy evaluation, we can print your allergy list for them and their visit summary and I tell them to cut it and laminate it <laughs> or take a photo of it and put it in your iPhone. So. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Thank you.